Hello and welcome back to the first Global in the Granite State episode of 2021, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. I know that 2020 was a long year for all of us, and I hope that you are all well and looking forward to a new year ahead. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the Council, as well as your host for this program. In today's episode, we take a look at two long-simmering conflicts from around the world that have fallen off the radar screen for many. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has consumed a lot of focus, rightfully so, but it has not meant that equally important issues have simply disappeared or been resolved. Diving into the issues facing both Ukraine and Venezuela, we hope to provide insights that have been sidelined in larger discussion forums. If you enjoy our conversations here, I would suggest checking out our online virtual programs that cover many different topics. You can find recordings of all programs from last year on our website at www.wacnh.org. Finally, if you like our podcast, please give us a rating and leave a comment. We would love your suggestions on issues to focus on for future episodes. for caring about what's happening in Venezuela can and should be made on the basis of human rights. That is Alejandro Velasco, associate professor at New York University and historian of modern Latin America. In addition to teaching on social movements throughout the region, he is also author of the book Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. His research has won major funding support from the Social Science Research Council, the American Historical Association, the Ford Foundation, and the Mellon Foundation, among others. He joined me to talk about the current situation in Venezuela and what things look like after the December 6th elections that many outside observers have called fraudulent. Venezuelans are undergoing a humanitarian crisis that is certainly the product of tremendous amount of mismanagement and corruption by the people in power in Venezuela, but that has also been accentuated by really short-sighted sanctions regimes that have made life even worse for people in Venezuela. And so there's a basic argument about justice and human rights that in this moment of reclaiming some of that sense of purpose in the world really could be put on the forefront in order for the United States to mark a transition from where it had been over the last four years. I wanted to start this conversation off with the importance of this issue, and certainly this is a very strong argument. However, as Alejandro mentions, if one isn't moved by the spirit, you know, there's also more material considerations at stake. You know, Venezuela continues to hold the world's largest reserves of oil. And in a context where, to be sure, we are worried about questions of climate change, there's also questions as to, you know, what a, uh, an economy is going to look like after COVID that needs to function, that needs to move. And some of that hopefully will be a lot of green energy, but a lot of that too will be, you know, moved by other sort of more conventional methods. And so, you know, having access to resources like oil will be really significant. More broadly, though, you know, there is a question here about regional stability. The Venezuelan crisis is not a crisis limited to Venezuela. The Venezuelan crisis is one that has spilled over 
to not only its neighboring countries, but throughout the region by way of over 5 million migrants who have left over the last five to 10 years, and which have taxed and put significant strains on economies that are already quite weak in places like Colombia, in places like Ecuador, in places like Peru, and made weaker by COVID. So attending to the crisis in Venezuela will have these spillover effects that will allow other countries to then attend to their populations in an extremely precarious post-COVID scenario. So in doing that, you know, showing some leadership in the region might also help to burnish some of the lost credibility of the United States in the region. Many of you have heard, I'm sure over the past six years, about the decline of the Venezuelan state. More recently, discussions have focused around the efforts of Juan Guaido to oust current President Nicolas Maduro, claiming he is held to power through fraudulent elections. What you may or may not have heard about is the story that gets us from one of the more prosperous countries in Latin America to now one of the more dysfunctional. First, I should say, though, that the framing of the once model country that collapsed into the catastrophe that we know today is both accurate, but sometimes incomplete. The fact is that usually when people make that comment, they are pointing to the 1970s and the 1980s, when Venezuela seemed to stand out from the wave of military dictatorships and civil wars throughout Latin America. And it seemed to write this out on the strength of its oil wealth, which it could redistribute towards the population as necessary, but also because of the stability of its institutions, which then both of those things see a prolonged decline beginning in the 1980s with the collapse of oil prices, and then the collapse of the party system followed shortly thereafter. And really what you saw was a broad sense of disintegration of what had been billed as a success story. But as often these things happen, the success in retrospect was not quite as successful as one imagined. And in fact, what was brewing in the 70s and 80s during this period of presumed success was also a broadening breach between rich and poor, a sense that even though, yes, Venezuela was to some extent a stable multi-party democracy, uh, that the parties that were predominant in the period were not as responsive to the changing needs of the population as they may otherwise have been. And so the sense of stasis, political kind of stasis, when added to the economic crisis as a result of the decline of oil prices, really shown a different light on what had again been seen as a success story. Over the course of the next 20 or so years, the country continued to struggle. There was a coup attempt in 1992, led by a young Hugo Chavez, and the signs of discontent were certainly there. Out of that maelstrom came a populist leadership encapsulated by Hugo Chavez's presidency, promising precisely to make Venezuela's political system much more responsive to the needs of those who had been left out under the previous system. And he largely was able to do so, especially when oil prices came again to climb up beginning in 2003 and 2004 in the wake of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And with tremendous amounts of resources at his disposal, he was able to basically build a tremendously distributive apparatus that also was translated into political favor. Upon taking power, Chavez was able to further and rather quickly consolidate power in the executive branch. Through a number of moves, including multiple revisions of the Constitution, a closer relationship with the military after ousting members who led a coup against him in 2002, as well as gaining control over the state-run oil industry, which gave him access to billions of billions of dollars 
to run social programs. His biggest victory, however, came in 2005 when the opposition boycotted the National Assembly elections, congressional elections, which therefore gave Chavez complete control over all of the major institutions of the state. Needless to say, with the passing of Chavez in 2013 and the drop again in the oil markets, the Chavismo model of governing was not long for this world. His hand-picked successor, Nicolas Maduro, was not the charismatic leader that Chavez was nor did he have the political clout to maintain such a strong grip on the institutions of power. These factors have led us to where we are today, with rampant inflation, popular discontent, and a, for a time, united opposition front to Maduro's power. That gave the opposition a much higher profile that they, you know, to some extent were able to ride into winning the National Assembly in 2015, which therefore created this tremendous pressure on the part of Maduro and the people around him to really move in a full authoritarian mode, sideline the National Assembly, invalidate mandates, appoint their own people, threaten to rewrite the Constitution again as a way basically to give him and his people much more power. This newly empowered opposition that had control of the National Assembly tried for the next several years to bring down the Maduro administration and force change. Actions out of the authoritarian playbook followed, mainly taking political prisoners, repression of protest, citizen surveillance, all of which came to a head in 2018 when Maduro really gave up any pretense of any sort of democratic legitimacy there was outright stealing of elections, which gave him a fresh new mandate of six years in power. On top of that, you had sanctions coming from the Trump administration, which was increasingly seeking to promote regime change and to stranglehold Venezuela's economy, all of which sort of have contrived over the last two years to create this really perfect storm of crises that I would basically summarize as the more things change, the more they stay the same. In 2019, many Americans heard the name Juan Guaido for the first time, as he, along with the National Assembly, named himself interim president of Venezuela. Guaido cut his political teeth in 2007 as a leader in student-led protests against the closure of the last private television company in the country. How he became the leader of the National Assembly is an interesting story in and of itself. So Juan Guaido's rise to political prominence was to some extent accidental. Juan Guaido is of popular origins. He comes from a political party called Voluntad Popular, which is led by somebody named Leopoldo Lopez, who is extremely prominent in what we might build as the more radical sector of the opposition, a sector that since 2002 really has been pushing for a quick ouster of whoever's in power, Chavez or, or Maduro or whomever. And so he had a tremendously high profile to the point that when he Lopez, led protests in 2014, he was arrested and placed under house arrest um, and really sort of sidelined from the political process. And so Guaido, to some extent, became his protege in Congress. He was elected as a kind of backbencher in this 2015 opposition wave that I mentioned before that won the National Assembly. And out of a complicated uh, process of trying to find consensus among a very fractious opposition, 
what they agreed after 2015 and winning the National Assembly is that they would rotate in power. The major parties would rotate in, in the presidency of the National Assembly. And so by the time that they got to 2019, the turn was of, of Voluntad Popular, of the, the party. And Juan Guaidó, to some extent, was the only person left standing of the party because many other leaders had been either exiled or put in prison or were run out of town. And so Juan Guaidó was sort of the only person left standing and he became a National Assembly president in January of 2019. And then soon thereafter, a couple of weeks later, said, well, I am actually, because of the fraud that Maduro just committed in the previous presidential elections, I am the legitimate president of Venezuela, the legitimate interim president until we can end the usurpation of power, call for new elections and establish a transitional government. Many of you have already heard about the different efforts that the opposition has undertaken in the past two years, but it is helpful to recount these. So what you found in Guaido over the subsequent two years were a series of increasingly erratic and desperate attempts to bring about this promised quick change that would eventually uh, result in the collapse of the regime. You had a botched attempt to bring in humanitarian supplies in February of 2019. And the idea there was that people would spontaneously rise up in Venezuela and lead to an ouster of the government. And that did not happen, and certainly in part because of repression by the Maduro regime, but also in part because of discontent and distrust of the very opposition that it was, this is leading. Then there was a failed, extremely failed coup attempt in April of 2019. And the idea there was that the military would rise up in support of the opposition, and that did not happen. Then there were failed negotiations that were promoted by Norway, but they were scuttled by the United States, who did not want to hear anything having to do with Maduro or any of his people remaining in, in any sort of, of power, in any kind of transition. And then the most sort of erratic ones, well, it came over the last six to seven months, the United States announced the, sort of this bounty on Maduro and some of his people, up to upwards of $15 million for their capture. They announced that Venezuela was a narco state, which therefore opened up all sorts of both legal and military avenues for dealing with Venezuela. And then there was this extremely botched invasion attempt by a mercenary group, which had been contracted allegedly by sectors of the opposition, including Guaido, again, in order to sort of spark this sense that all that's required for Maduro to fall is a little push. This gets us to where things stand today. On December 6th, the Venezuelan government hosted elections for the National Assembly. However, the opposition, for the most part, boycotted the election, claiming it was fraudulent. Many Latin American and other Western governments agreed, stating that the conditions for a free and fair election had not been met. Of course, this led to a huge majority of Maduro's supporters being elected to the National Assembly, set to take their seats in January. One would think this would help to coalesce the opposition, however. Right now, Guaido in particular, but more broadly the opposition, really finds itself in an extremely delicate place, where what you have are basically two primary opposition camps. There's one whose center of power is in the expatriate community worldwide, certainly in the United States, but also in places like Colombia, in places like Spain. And their primary agenda is to continue the sanctions, continue pressure on the Maduro regime until there is some sort of organic break from within Venezuela. And then there is an opposition that is inside Venezuela, that is domestic. 
And this domestic opposition feels the everyday impact of the strengthening of these sanctions on the inability to buy gasoline and the inability to buy diesel and the inability to buy foods and products unless you have access to dollars or an inability to travel, not only because of coronavirus, but because few countries really recognize Venezuela in its papers abroad because of these two competing governments. And so these two opposition camps, the domestic one, which is open to negotiations, which is open to a different path, and an exile one, which controls a tremendous degree of power in terms of international support and also significant amounts of resources, are in no way coordinating. So where do we go from here? Does Guaido lose his legitimacy by having not been reelected as Speaker of the National Assembly? Does the U.S. continue to support efforts in Venezuela with an eye towards regime change? I think the most likely scenario is that the question of legitimacy is going to be on the table in a new round of negotiations. To the extent that Guaido will demand and has been demanding not only continued recognition as the interim president, he wants harsher sanctions against the Maduro government. That, I think, is going to be a really difficult pill to swallow for Biden administration that has other priorities than the Trump administration's priorities. However, the reality is that who controls Venezuela continues to be Maduro. They control institutions, they control the military, they control the infrastructure, you know, they control the state apparatus. No doubt it's an extremely weakened state because of sanctions and other things, but they continue to control it. And as a result, that gives them a de facto not democratic legitimacy, but a, a ruling legitimacy that has to be contended with. And the strategy over the past certainly two years and during the Trump administration of, of pretending that that's not the case has only led to sort of fictitious and illusory approaches towards politics than, than in fact should be the case. So he controls that. But of course, it's also true that you know, Guaido and the opposition abroad also control significant amounts of resources. The Trump administration and other countries in Europe have seized assets belonging to Venezuela and have, in some cases, have dispersed those assets to the Guaido government. And so they will absolutely marshal some resources of their own. It seems that this will continue to be a major flashpoint moving forward to the detriment of the Venezuelan people. It is our job as global citizens to understand these issues and make our voices heard. With the new incoming administration, there will be plenty of opportunities to make your elected officials know how you feel the U.S. should or should not be involved. Thank you to Alejandro Velasco for joining me for this discussion, and to you for listening in. Ukraine is one of the largest and potentially wealthy countries on the border of Europe. It's not part of the EU, obviously, and not about to join the EU anytime soon. This is Elise Giuliano, a lecturer in the political science department at Columbia University and director of graduate studies of the master's program at the Harriman Institute. She focuses on the politics of ethnic identity and has spent a lot of time looking at how the current conflict in eastern Ukraine has influenced political opinions among Ukrainian citizens. She joined me to talk about this ongoing conflict that has fallen out of the news cycle, despite its important geopolitical implications. 
exactly for this reason that it is a democracy, albeit a fledgling one, if Ukraine were to become a democratic country and were to become a country that joins Europe, it serves as a model, an example to the rest of the world about countries that can transition from communist or authoritarian rule toward democracy. I mean, it already is a model. It already does have a great degree of pluralism, but it also is a very corrupt country. And if it could move beyond conflict or war, it would be able to focus more of its attention fighting corruption, building its economy, and working toward democracy. So the U.S. should be interested in promoting democracy in formerly authoritarian states and in peace in Europe. If you recall, Russia invaded Ukrainian territory all the way back in March of 2018, which seems like a lifetime ago at this point. To this day, Russia still occupies Crimea, despite international sanctions, as well as supports a war that continues to rage in the eastern part of the country. As there has not been much in the way of reporting on this issue, outside of the impeachment effort over the summer, it may be good to get a quick refresher. So we are familiar with the, I would say, two most popular explanations. The first one being Russia, interested in defending the rights of ethnic Russians and Russian-speaking citizens of Ukraine, uh, many of whom are living in the eastern part of Ukraine, in Donbass, and certainly in Crimea, as well as scattered throughout um, the southern part of Ukraine. And a kind of concern for the culture, the past, the shared history as Soviet citizens and as members of the Orthodox faith. This is a lot of what uh, Russia and Putin spoke of at the time of the annexation using a very highfalutin and overblown language concerning Orthodoxy, history, the birth of the Russian nation. And then we're also familiar with the story about Russia's fear of expansion of NATO, NATO and Europe coming up to its borders and Russia considering its borders to be the post-Soviet states, the former Soviet republics, which include, of course, the Caucasus, Central Asia, the Baltics, Ukraine, and Moldova. And certainly these geopolitical considerations were one of the main triggers for Russia's decision to annex Crimea, given that Ukraine's president at the time had been agreeing with Putin's decision to create the Eurasian Economic Union, which would have brought a kind of European Union-like economic organization into the East. After a lot of flip-flopping between moving closer to Europe or Russia, the president at the time, Yanukovych, decided to continue the shift east rather than west. This led to large student protests by those hoping for closer integration into Europe, which then, these protests, became larger and larger and took on a broader character. And why this is important to the origin of the conflict several months later in 2014 in the spring is because what the world started to witness was a kind of people power, massive number of people out on the streets. And you saw it mainly in Kiev on the so-called Maidan or Independence Square, but also in many cities throughout Ukraine. And what the protesters wanted morphed, actually surveys show morphed in some ways from being about joining Europe to being an anti-Yanukovych, anti-authoritarianism, anti-corruption. Not only were students and everyday people out on the streets across the country for these protests, 
A number of political elites were also tired of the corruption of the Yanukovych regime. It looked like the revolution was going to be successful and... Russian citizens are watching this carefully. And this is important because one thing that doesn't get brought out about the origins of the conflict has a lot to do with how Putin and how the leaders of the Russian government understand mass protest. And they have a great fear of mass protest. And this protest, this Maidan protest in Ukraine has to also be seen in the light of a series of protests throughout the post-Soviet world known as color revolutions that had been popping up here and there um, in Georgia, in Ukraine earlier, known as the Orange Revolution for the past 10 to 15 years. And Putin always not only took a dim view of these protests, but saw in them a real possibility of his own overthrow and saw in them the hand of the U.S. And Putin's focus, to put it mildly, or obsession, to put it possibly more accurately, with the U.S. and with the U.S.'s role in Russian domestic politics kind of came to a head, I would say, in 2014. With all of this as a backdrop, including domestic issues Putin was facing at home, Putin felt like he had to do something to show his people that revolution would not be a way to a better life, but that they needed him to maintain stability and control in the country. This was made manifest in the invasion of Crimea in 2014, which was disguised at first as a local reaction to the initial revolution, followed by Russia claiming to support the rights of ethnic Russians in Crimea. After taking Crimea, Russia set its sights on other parts of Ukraine. But is it fair to say that the efforts in the Donbass are the same as the military incursion in Crimea? So one important point about the conflict, or there's always a debate, is this conflict just a Russian invasion of East Ukraine, or is it a civil war? Meaning, is is there some domestic support for the war in Donbass? And it's a little bit complicated, unfortunately, but it is not accurate to say that Russia decided to repeat the annexation of Crimea, which was just blatant land grab right, blatant annexation a la 19th century Europe. It's not the case that Russia said, okay, let's now repeat that in other Eastern cities in Donbass, i.e. in Donetsk and Luhansk. There was an indigenous political movement would be an exaggeration, but there are political actors in Ukraine who favored joining up with Russia. There were also a larger number of Ukrainian citizens there who favored increased autonomy from Kiev, who disagreed with Maidan, who disagreed with the overthrow of Yanukovych, not necessarily because they favored Yanukovych as a leader, but because they were nervous about the new post-Maidan government that had come to power in Ukraine at the beginning of 2014. And so there were people in many cities in eastern Ukraine, not just in Iska and Luhansk, who did favor increased autonomy. Some of them favored secession. There was a range. But what happens is that the kind of subtlety of political opinions and opposition and the various kinds of outcomes it could have led to became agglomerated into what looked like separatism as a result of the early use of force, unfortunately. So when you go back to look at what was happening among those Ukrainians who declared the existence of a people's republic, the Donetsk People's Republic, the DNR, and the Luhansk People's Republic, the LNR, you see that there's even a a lot of confusion among the 20 or so leaders who stormed the Ukrainian government buildings. Russia took advantage of this chaotic moment 
And through a mixture of disinformation, some funding, some very engaged Russian citizens who did strongly believe in a kind of civilizational alliance among ethnic Russians and Russian speakers and Orthodox who went to the region and became involved. Russia took advantage and sent increasing amount of money and then eventually sent members of the Russian military. After initial battles, the sides came together to sign the Minx-1 agreements, which were to put an end to the fighting. The ceasefire did not hold and battles resumed the next year. Another agreement, Minx-2, took effect in late 2015 and is still in place today. However, ceasefire after ceasefire failed and a smoldering conflict continued for the next five years. Over 13,000 people died in this time frame, but the world looked to other priorities and lost focus on the issue. Now, we will jump ahead a few years to the point where... The president of Ukraine, who was elected at the beginning of the conflict, Poroshenko, was voted out of office. And the new president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was elected in spring of 2019. And as you may know, he was a television actor and a comedian, but interestingly played a character on his television sitcom that was a teacher who accidentally found himself elected president of Ukraine. Fiction becomes reality (laughs) to a degree, and Zelensky becomes a new president of Ukraine. One of the key campaign slogans that he ran on was that he would end the war. So what has he done since then and where do things stand today? He did enter office with a huge amount of popularity. He won in the landslide, which is the first time Ukrainian population has been so in favor of a political candidate. And then he created a political party named Servant of the People, and they won in the landslide. So he kind of was in a very uh, attractive place for a politician to be, having a majority in the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada. And he has attempted to implement the Minsk II agreements, which had been basically frozen uh, due to the disagreement or the, say, even incommensurate stipulations of the agreement between Russia and Ukraine. A lot of Minsk II was not overly problematic, even if it was not necessarily held to. The ceasefire had not held. However, observers from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe had been allowed to monitor the region. Prisoner exchanges and other issues were mostly observed. However, there were disagreements about local elections and Russia relinquishing control of the Donbass region. So the disagreement is about the timing, which would happen first. Ukraine wanted Russia to relinquish control of the border, i.e. ceasefire. Russia removes its support for the armed forces there and basically you know, leaves. And that's the end of the conflict. And then Ukraine said, we will implement the local elections and see what happens. Russia, on the other hand, wanted the elections first in their so-called proxy regions, the LNR and DNR, and then said after that, they would relinquish control of the border. So you can see why these are two points that are very hard for the two sides to come to agreement on. And the debate has been whether Minsk II should even remain in force since it hadn't been fulfilled all these years and since the two sides vehemently disagreed on the order of the fulfillment of the stipulations. Over the course of the Zelensky presidency, he has tried to end the conflict and implement the Minsk II agreements. There have been prisoner exchanges and continued discussions with the Russians about ending the conflict, including trilateral meetings in Paris, 
where the population worried that Zelensky would sell out Ukraine. This did not happen, however, and these conversations did lead to the longest ceasefire in the history of the conflict, which started over the summer and held through at least the end of the year. However, the population of Ukraine expected more, hoped for more, and feels right now finds itself very disappointed in what came out of Paris, and it has led to rising opposition to President Zelensky. But now again, and it's a little too early to say, Ukraine again is trying to take the lead in demilitarizing the conflict zone and has recently, and just in November, come up with what's called a joint steps plan in which it's hoping to um, regain greater control over the border in the East and hoping to hold local elections at the same time without allowing Russia to run those elections. So far, Russia has not given an inch, unfortunately, and it's uh, very bad news because there's only so much Ukraine can do when you have um, a Russian regime that is in denial and intransigently not interested in meeting halfway. At the end of the day, there does not seem to be a light yet at the end of this very long tunnel. Without outside pressure for a resolution, it seems that this conflict will continue to cause death and destruction for quite some time. It's just a very tragic situation, and there was a lot of soul-searching on the part of Europe and the U.S. after the last time that Europe and the U.S. found itself unaware or disinterested initially in war in Europe, i.e. war in Bosnia. So this is a, a kind of moment where it should, I think, become engaged to stop the violence and improve the lives of people who have suffered so needlessly for the past six, almost seven years. Finally, the U.S. in particular needs to be concerned about the resolution of this conflict because... This is a problem with Russia, and the U.S. needs to be concerned about Russia. Why does the U.S. need to be concerned about Russia? Well, to boil it down to fundamentals, Russia's a nuclear power, and we need to have armed control agreements with Russia. This is not to say that the U.S. needs to placate Russia, but the U.S. needs to be concerned about arms control, it needs to have an ongoing diplomatic relationship with Russia, is going to be engaged with Russia for many years to come. And this this stalemate that's been going on for so many years and that characterizes Ukrainian-Russian relations and more broadly European and US relations toward Russia with regard to Ukraine is not in the interest of any side of the conflict. Thank you to Elise Giuliano for providing her insights into this important geopolitical issue and why it should not fall off the radar of the U.S. or its citizens. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to the Global and the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We appreciate your support and interest in learning more about what is going on around the world. Global understanding and engagement will undoubtedly lead to a more peaceful and prosperous world. I hope you will consider engaging further with our programs, and if you haven't already, check out our website. The more you engage, the more you will learn, and the more you can lord your knowledge over your friends. Thanks again for your support. Our theme music, as always, is Admin by A.A. Alto. Our interlude music is La Morena by Te Palcate and Ukraine by Mike Morton. Tim Horgan is our host, interviewer, audio technician, and producer. Mm-hmm.